Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back. We are doing section 76 this time, and today we have Christopher Hurtado with us. So it's me, Ben, and Christopher Hurtado. Welcome, Christopher. Hello, Ben. It's good to be with you. Yeah. So Shiloh is doing Shiloh stuff. Christopher has graciously uh, agreed to join me here in a discussion of Section 76. And as we were discussing this beforehand, we both felt quite intimidated by this section. The more that I read context and commentary on it, the more intimidated I got. I think when initially I was like, oh, section 76, great. You know, that's, that's going to be great. I, I understand that section. <laughs> and then like the more commentary and stuff that I read on it, the more I felt like I am not qualified to even discuss this. <laughs> so um, I don't know. Is that kind of the same way you felt, Christopher? It was a little bit different for me, Ben. So I felt pretty intimidated just, re- you know, reading the section. I've read it before, naturally, but I read through the section and I was just intimidated and I procrastinated doing anything. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I usually read commentary, but I thought, what could, what possible good could that do me with this section? But then I read some commentary last minute and shared with you. And so it's my fault you got intimidated, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I actually got some, some facts and some, you know, context and things that helped me feel a little bit more confident. But ultimately, I think we're going to go with this is a little more mystical, a little more, to the heart than to the mind. But there are these facts and and these little details that we might bring out that are historical, that are contextual, that I think make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So this section is referred to as the vision, like the vision. And the reason for this is because the this section forms what uh, one commentator called like the backbone of Latter-day Saint understanding of the resurrection and eternal destiny of the sons and daughters of God. This really starts to more clearly articulate what a unique Latter-day Saint theology and cosmology really look like. We draw so much of our narratives and stories, even our term, the plan of salvation, is actually, you know, when you say plan of salvation, you can't really, in a Latter-day Saint context, even discuss that term without bringing up section 76 because everything in it is fundamental to that narrative. So this is a vision or the vision given to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. So this is interesting because in most of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, these have revelations that are given through Joseph Smith and then he dictates them and they're written down. This one is more unique. It happens in the course of the quote-unquote translation of the Bible that we discussed last time. And they, they come across a verse that then sort of inspires them to start meditating and asking questions. 
And when we were talking before, Christopher, you know, you, you brought up the question that's like this verse that is brought up doesn't seem to really be something that would spark everything that we find in section 76. In fact, we can think of some other Bible verses that really would segue into this section a whole lot better than, than the verse that, <laughs> that is stated. That's a very interesting case in point that often during Joseph Smith's course of his you know, reading the scriptures or translations or or meditations on certain things, we we get these revelations that are barely tangential to what the initial spark is. There's an important principle there we can use to recognize in our own personal relationship and walk and maybe relationship with the scriptures, relationship with God in personal revelation. Often we may read something out of scripture and the Lord teaches us something that is, you know, very tangential to what we were reading about, or maybe has almost nothing to do with what we were reading about. And that's because I think that the scriptures, at least for me, act more as a catalyst, you know, because the the point isn't the scriptures. The point is our personal relationship with God. So much of the scriptures are simply trying to provide that catalyst, that spark that will initiate our own personal revelation. So what we see here in section 76 is interesting from the perspective of that because there's this whole explanation that that can even seem very detailed, and yet it's all contextualized within the last few verses of the section. So I'm I'm actually going to start off by going to the last few verses here. Starting in verse 114, But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord, and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he showed unto us, which surpass all understanding and glory and in might and dominion. And then going to verse 16, Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him. In other words, you know, Joseph Smith is saying, look, we just told you all of this stuff, but really, we didn't really explain what it really was. We didn't explain the thing. The whole point of this is simply to get you thinking along the lines that you can go have a personal experience in Revelation. To me, that's sort of a microcosm of, of Scripture itself. The purpose of Scripture is to point us to that direction, that personal revelation with Christ. I think it's so interesting to think about how this happened, the revelation, the idea that both Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon had this, the same revelation at the same time. And there was a, there were other people in the room when this happened. And the, and the, the context of this revelation is they're at somebody's house. There are other people there. The other people that were there had a sense of the glory of God. Something's going on, right? But they're not really seeing the vision as Joseph and Sidney are. They're hearing Joseph say, what do I see? And then he says what he sees. And Sidney Rignan says, I see that too. And then Sidney Rignan says, what do I see? This is what I see. And Joseph says, yeah, I see that too. Right. And they corroborate each other's vision. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting too how, how powerful asking questions is. This is something I've gone into quite a bit on the Latter-day Contemplation podcast in my own experience Asking questions is so powerful. Whatever the verse was that they were reading, where it's just talking about salvation and damnation, it's not even the verse from Corinthians or 1 Corinthians where you get the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars and things like something like that, something a lot more 
a lot more akin to the degrees of glory. And in fact, the language of that chapter right, is actually included in this vision, in the recording of it, right? And this is actually a series of visions that's happening too. Right. It's not really one vision. It's a series of visions. I know we're going to go through them. And just look at what it does to ask a question. I've done this myself. I've asked a question. I've gotten answers and I've been blown away. Not quite like this. Boy, this is really something. We're dealing here again, as you mentioned, Ben, at the end of the chapter with things that are mysteries. It's actually, that word's actually used in this section too, right? You can know the mysteries of God and, and the mysteries are those things of God which are ineffable, which cannot be put into words. Right. Uh, mystery uh, comes from the Greek word for, it means to close the mouth. So either they can't be said because that you just can't put them in words or when it comes to ancient mystery cults, which is a lot like the, the idea that we're taught in that when we go to the LDS temple is that you're not supposed to say them, right? You, there are things that you don't share, uh, that you don't actually talk about. So either you can't talk about them because you're not allowed to, or you can't talk about them because they just can't be talked about. And then the other thing that came to my mind listening to you and thinking about our conversation prior to this recording is section 67. Uh, that I know we wanted to go into that too. Yeah, so uh, you know, I wanted to touch a little bit on on what you just said about you know the ineffability of certain things. I the I've always taken those imperatives, you know, to not talk about certain things as symbolic as such. Like you know, you don't talk about this because it's symbolic of the fact that there are certain things that you receive that that you can't, you know, you you can't express, and so. I've, I've always taken those imperatives as a symbolic teaching that we say, okay, it's, it's not so important that you don't talk about that specific thing. What that is teaching you is that there will be things that you that are personally revealed to you from God that you won't be able to express. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that you didn't receive the revelation just because you're not able to express it. Those personal experiences are, are meant to be that way. Like the, the concept that the imperative is actually like a symbolic description rather than prescription to us. You know, I've gone online for my own convenience because I knew I could, and I found the temple ceremony, mm -hmm. the, the, the script. It makes my wife uncomfortable that I do this, even though I've been to the temple. What you don't find there is the experience that you have in the temple. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's a text of a ceremony and it's and it's a sacred ceremony. But I think a lot like the scriptures, it's supposed to it's a mode that puts you into a place where you can have an experience just like reading the scriptures. And as a matter of fact, I remember when I first met my wife, I wasn't worthy to go to the temple. And yet I would go to the temple, maybe not inside, but I would go into the waiting room, which is actually inside the temple doors in Houston. And I would read from from the, the Pearl of Great Price. Mm -hmm. And I would read all about the creation, what I knew in my understanding of what she was experiencing, that she was experiencing. And I'd sit while she was uh, going through that experience of the endowment, and I'd read. And I came to find out later, uh, find out later on that my experience wasn't that different from hers. Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting. Which, which, by the way, when I say that, you know, when I say I wasn't worthy, what I mean is I wasn't deemed worthy to hold a temple recommend. Sure. I had the same experience. I mean, I had a very similar experience, put it that way. And to me, that was just 
it was another testimony among many of God's mercy in my own life. Right. The text of the verse here that that sort of, um, like I said, acts as the catalyst for this whole thing is, is verse 17 out of this section. It says, And shall come forth they who have done good in the resurrection of the just, and they who have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. The reason that I, I this is so interesting to me that this would be the verse is because, uh, as you mentioned before, Christopher, when we were talking, that what this verse actually says doesn't necessarily outright contradict, but it doesn't really express at all what the section goes on to talk about <laughs> because it kind of expresses this divide between heaven and hell, right? Or it could be termed that way. Whereas then the section goes on to explain, oh, it's much more complex than that. There's actually verses in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 that actually talk about the celestial and terrestrial glories, and they talk about sun, moon, and stars. Joseph Smith translation throws in telestial in there, which is actually a word that uh, Joseph Smith made up, which is so yeah. interesting. The word, the word only exists in the English language to describe this specific Latter-day Saint quote-unquote Mormon doctrine of this telestial kingdom. The word didn't exist in English beforehand, and it's not been used to describe anything else. And, uh, you know, yeah, so that reminds me, Ben, when, when I was in, uh, at BYU as, as an undergraduate student, I chose to write a paper on the Liahona. Uh. And the cool thing about that was you could Google Liahona and you could read everything, everything that had to do with your topic because it was either the Liahona that you were writing about or some charter yacht in the Caribbean or <laughs> I think it was a bank, right? So, some business, you know, something like that. And so I, I wonder what telestial is like. Google that, right? If you look up yeah, in some yeah. in some English dictionaries, it's it's defined as a degree of glory in Mormon theology. Right, right. And and there was some speculation I was reading on this. Um, a person said, you know, we don't we don't have a specific explanation on the etymology of this word from Joseph Smith. However, if we were to take the word tele, you know, from its Greek root, it meant like at a distance. So this is the kingdom that is most distant from God. You could term it that way, that that's what that word means. Yeah, like telephone, where we hear from far away, or telescope, where we see far away. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that's a good conjecture, I think. Joseph Smith never said it that way, but it definitely fits with the, the roots of the word and everything. So, And you know, yet, Ben, in keeping with our idea of the end from the beginning, I just couldn't wait to bring this one up. There's this there's this quote, right, that has been attributed to Joseph Smith, uh, variously to Joseph Smith and to Brigham Young, where there's really no early evidence of it. Uh, there's something from 1877 in somebody's diary saying that the person writing in the diary that he heard Joseph Smith talk about this, this idea that if you knew how good it were in the telestial kingdom, you would kill yourself to get there. Or if you knew how good it were after this life, right? Right. It was a little, it was a little less specific than telestial, uh, in the in the journal entry at least. But we do get this quote, this apocryphal quote, that if you knew how good the celestial kingdom were, you would kill yourself to get there. And that comes into focus as we proceed through this this vision and get to the explanation of that kingdom. It's it, it is interesting. It's kind of a kind of a dark way of framing it, though. <laughs> it is. <You> know? <laughs> Please. Do not try this at home. <laughs> Do not try this at home. So um, verse 17 that sort of states this Bible verse, 
we we then get the explanation in the next couple of verses, which I think is really perfect for couching the whole section and then putting into perspective those last verses that talk about really it's ineffable. So here we have verse 18 following the, the verse that's that talks about the resurrection of just and, and the unjust. It says, now this caused us to marvel for it was given unto us of the spirit. So there's sort of some steps here. I think that that could be descriptive of how we sometimes can receive revelation using scripture as catalyst. When we're going through the scriptures, we sometimes run across something that seems odd to us or stands out to us or makes us wonder, kind of ask a question, right? Even if the question isn't clearly articulated, it might be something like, what does this even mean? And so it says that they marvel, for it was given unto us of the Spirit. And while we meditated upon these things, the Lord touched the eyes of our understandings, and they were opened, and the glory of the Lord shone round about. This is a very good description of uh, how times I have received revelation while reading the scriptures as a catalyst. And I like how it sort of frames the fact that it's the condescension and grace of the Lord that actually comes down to touch our minds, to open them to something that is beyond and higher than our, our current understanding. Tutto bene. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? Well, it is interesting to note that when, when we do marvel, right, when we are in wonder or awe, and we say awesome so much nowadays and, and yet experience so little true awe, but if we would be in awe, if we would wonder or be astonished at the scriptures, and if we would look look for the opportunity to do this, right? Uh, that is to to ponder and marvel on these things, because I think marvel, the way it's described here, it seems like something that happens to you. But I think marvel in a way, I don't know whether a dictionary would back me up in this, but I can think of the, the possibility of marveling in a more proactive way or at least looking for the opportunity to marvel. So instead of making the scripture something that I already know what this is saying, right? Or that, um, yeah, it, you'd be surprised. I've just, I've noticed, I've paid attention both to my own reading and to the reading of others around me, whether in family settings, whether in church, at just how much we think we already know what's being said. And we don't really just, we don't really go into it. We just, oh yeah, I know what that says. And we don't really go into it and we don't really wonder, we don't really marvel, we don't really have any awe or circumspection about it. And we miss so much in terms of opportunity. Right? We have the opportunity to really, to ask that question that you brought up, by the way, that you almost made it sound like it wasn't really a well-formulated question. But Ben, in my experience, what does this even mean is a great question. I mean, that's <laughs> opened up so many things for me. I won't go into a dream I had that I've already recounted on this podcast and the Latter-day Contemplation podcast, but I'll just mention again that I once had a strange dream, and I just was writing in my in my journal that the morning after, and I said, what does this even mean? And then all of a sudden, the answer came to me. As soon as I, as soon as I asked the question, I wrote it down, and I hit question mark, and the answer came. We have to ask questions. All, all of the Doctrine and Covenants comes from asking questions, all of it. I think that that concept of marveling, I like how you put that. It, it's tied to humility, right? That that yeah. we allow our our preconceived notions of something to to melt away, 
and allow, you know, something to have new life as, as we go into it, allow God to reveal himself in a new way to us. We kind of set that down. This is kind of a, a beatitude process in microcosm. We could see here we're, we're being poor in spirit. We're allowing those preconceived notions to fall away. And we just say, you know, God, tell me what it is that you want me to understand more about you through this. And uh, I think when that's done in humility, that that I think is is what maybe marveling could be in this in this concept. And and so then there's that condescension there that the verse 19 talks about that the Lord comes down and touches and opens our our eyes of understanding to see things that we hadn't seen before, see things in a way that we hadn't seen them before. And that that's this is a repentance process here that that's really tied into this whole concept of revelation. So that's it, really profound to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can, how can the Lord fill us if we don't empty ourselves first? One of the things that fascinated me most about this section and always has is its poetic structure. Yes. And, and you can probably talk more about this in, in scholarly ways, but you know, as I went through, I was, I was realizing that there is, there's a quite a bit of, um, ascension and descension going on throughout this section. You know, as, as they get into the discussion here, they first start off with a vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Now, this is the first written, vi- written down vision that Joseph Smith gives where he says he actually sees God and Jesus Christ. Now, later we get the, the recorded, quote unquote, first vision. But at this time, we don't have any of that. This is the first one. And so, so this, for all intents and purposes, the church receives this as, oh, you know, Joseph Smith just saw God and Jesus Christ. And, and this is their first experience with him expressing that fact. So we start off sort of at what we could call the celestial level. It's not, our, it's not termed as such until a little bit later, but this is the general structure of this. We start off at that celestial level, then we, we descend all the way into perdition and there's a discussion about satan and the what we we call the sons of perdition those that are lost the term outer darkness is not articulated here yet as it is in in other parts of the scriptures um, but it's not termed as such here um, but that's basically what the discussion is 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 what we would later term outer darkness and then there's an ascension that goes through a discussion of the gospel and the mission of Jesus Christ. And that that arrives all the way back up again at the celestial level. And there's a discussion of the celestial kingdom. And then it descends down to a discussion of the terrestrial kingdom. And then it descends again down to a discussion of the telestial. Then turns back up to a short mention of the terrestrial, another short mention of the celestial, and then descends again to a comment about the terrestrial, and then a little more lengthy discussion of the telestial. And so we have this, this sort of a bit of a roller coaster here that happens. You know, you start up high, and then the first drop of the roller coaster is really, really far down to perdition. And then you have sort of this up and down that goes back through the scriptures. A little bit of chiasmic structure um, going on, but also in sort of a unique way. Later, there was a, a poem that was written by W.W. Phelps and published in, was it Times and Seasons? Is that right? I think so. 
Yeah, it published about times diseases, and then like it was um, apparently done with the cooperation of Joseph Smith, and then he signed his name to it. Um, that is sort of a, a like a verse sort of description of this section. Well, there's the poem that's the the question from W. W. Phelps. That's a, a letter, an open letter to Joseph Smith, asking for an explanation of this of this revelation. And then there's the answer, which it which it isn't clear who wrote it. It looks like W. W. Phelps wrote it too, but it looks like Joseph Smith collaborated with him, right? And they both right. sign it. And man, it's good stuff. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, as I was first reading it, didn't really know how long it was. I thought, I really want to read this on the podcast. But it's so long. The answer part is so long. Maybe I think you have some quotes, though. Don't you to go into a little bit of a taste of it? Well, um, I, I, I won't quote directly from the poem. If there's something that stood out to you in particular, I think uh, you can go ahead and share it. But I think it might be enough to tell people this exists and you should go read it and have an experience. <laughs> yeah, do, yeah, Doctrine and Covenants Central has it. It's just like a poetic form of this section. But there's little snips here and there that, that sort of bring in other parts of, of LDS theology that, that maybe make connections that you, you hadn't made before. But it's just, you know, it's, it's spelled out in a way that probably written by W.W. W. Phelps because he had a way with words, right? <laughs> yeah. Although, again, the answer is supposed to be Joseph Smith. It's supposed to be a commentary. It's more of a, it's more of a, a restatement, right? It looks more like just the same revelation in poetic form. Right. It started to make me think of this poem in terms of Dante's uh, divine comedy, right? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so, of course, given what you've explained, I, I wouldn't disagree with you at all about the ups and the downs of this, but I still see overall what I would expect to see in this kind of vision because it's always been the case. And this is something we, we went into in uh, on the Latter-day Contemplation podcast in terms of ascension texts. Ascension text, this is an ascension text, right? Here you right. have a vision of the highest heavens, of all the heavens, really. And so all these visions, they start, we call this an anabasis, which is, means a going up. And they all start first with a katabasis, which means a going down. You have to go down before you can go up. What does Dante, the, the, the poet, do with Dante, the character? He sends him all the way down through the depths of hell before he can climb Mount Purgatory to reach then paradise and the Empyrean with God. You see the same thing in the myth of, of Isis and Osiris in ancient Egypt. It's in Homer's uh, Odyssey, book uh, 11. You have uh, the Aeneid, book 6. This is, this is just the way the it temple. is. You go down before yeah. the temple, right? Yeah, we actually have had a uh, podcast on that too. And the temple is as an ascension experience or the, or was it the, we definitely did the, the Beatitudes. And that was something we didn't even know would work when we did it. We had a conversation with Morgan Aldous and that was just great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was pretty cool. Yeah. So I expected to see that. And I do see overall that you have this pattern of, you have this descent before you have an ascent, but yeah, the ascent does sort of take you. I guess you could call that a roller coaster ride. Why not? <laughs> it kind of looks like one. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you mapped it out. I wonder if we if we could provide a visual for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good one. I would need to redo it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know if we have a way to do that, but I would encourage listeners to do what what Ben did and sort of map this out on paper. Yeah, ben showed this to me before we recorded. We were on Skype and using video, and he showed me his map of this, what it looks like. And he, he did say it wasn't to scale. But yeah, it's it's a useful exercise. 
important sometimes to think about the structure of, of the text too. But again, what we're trying to do ultimately is to have an experience because we can make even the scriptures into an idol. Right? The, 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 scriptures, the scriptures become a talisman. They become an idol when what we're really supposed to be doing is following the example of Joseph Smith. And he's inviting us here to have our own experience, to have our own vision. Right. You know, some of these, these opening verses here where he expresses what he's seeing in vision of God and Christ, these are some of the most iconic, like Joseph Smith quotes, you could say, that we can pull out of the Doctrine and Covenants. So here we have, starting in verse 22, I think this is what we call, well, they don't call them scripture mastery anymore, doctrinal mastery or, or whatever for seminary. Verse 22, and now after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Yeah, you know, Ben, it's interesting because when I read that, I thought, well, this is this shows up in the living Christ. And so it left me with the question, are the apostles, are, are the, is the first presidency when putting out the living Christ, are they just quoting from section 76? And or, I'm going to say and or instead of or, and or are they having their own experience? Mm. Right? I think mm. we, I always assumed that they had had their own experience of this until I realized that, oh, this is word for word from section 76. And so that left me with that question. And I'm okay either way. Yeah, I mean, it could be either way. I do know that often I'll have an experience and then I'm reading scripture and I'll come across a verse and I'm like, oh, that describes exactly the experience that I had. And so yeah. it makes much more sense to like use those words, right, to describe it. And so it, that, you know, that could be the case or it could be simply that this is a very well articulated statement of what what it is the doctrine of the church that that we're proclaiming right and right and it doesn't have to be either or right but that that's a good point no i love that you put it that way and as a matter of fact i shouldn't say i'm okay either way i'm okay with both end yeah either or and or both end how's that sure <laughs> then this is the the dissension so in these next verses we drop all the way to the from the highest highs to the lowest lows to perdition right can I just say something about perdition? Sure. I know, so again, I'm trying to bring out the end from the beginning here. I know we're going to go into more detail, but I just want to point out, if we, as we go all the way down to perdition, what this word meant in Joseph Smith's time is akin to destruction. And yet that doesn't really say enough. I have to say more because we tend to think of destruction as an annihilation of a person. If we say someone's going to be destroyed, we think that means that their person will be annihilated. But the real meaning of this is that their peace their well-being is annihilated, not their person. And so you're talking about a state of being. And so not a metaphysical non-existence versus existence where you cease to exist, right? But where you, cease, where you cease to be at peace, where you cease to be well, it's your well-being, your peace that's destroyed, not your person. Yeah, and that's interesting that the actual root of the Latin root of this word perdition is you know, perder, to lose, perdere, you know, something that is lost. So perdition is that which is lost. 
And right. and we could look at this in, in a couple different ways. Lost from what perspective? Uh, lost to God? Or did they lose themselves? Like, did they lose that part of their being? They can't find that part of their being that that was their true self. They've been completely lost in their false self. I, I'm not really sure. You know, we could definitely yeah. frame this in, in different ways. Or did they lose sight of the target, right? They're mm. thinking of sin again as that that archery term, hamartia, right? That that means you're missing the, the mark. And yeah. if you need if you're facing the wrong way, that's one of the easiest ways to miss the mark. They have to repent. And and we do have this, you've already brought up the possibility of a repentance no matter how low you go. Right. Yeah. Now there's there's competing quotes on this because yes. the overall notion is that wait, you know, if something is termed perdition, it's truly lost, it cannot be found, right? It's it's lost, it's gone, it's in outer darkness, there's no light there, we don't know where it is, we can't find it. On the other hand, we have explicit statements from Christ about that which is lost is now found. Right, yes. he tells all these parables about it and everything. So, I, I'm not really sure here, but I I can. I'm with Christ on this one. <laughs> I, I know Christ that since I tell you what, yeah. since the since the general authorities have not been able to agree with each other, let's go with Christ. <laughs> I get a sense from the next verse, not necessarily of what what really is this this outcome, but there's some some gravity to it. That I think I've always kind of felt as reading through this, but it, it really hit me this time as I was reading through it. Verse 26, and was called perdition, for the heavens wept over him. Mm. And we beheld, and lo, he is fallen, is fallen, even a son of the morning. Yeah. You know, when uh, when Lazarus died, and when, you know, when Mary was, Mary was pretty sad about that. And Jesus wept, right? At least, is it, does he weep in that story? He, yes. he groans in the spirit and he weeps. So all of that's going on. And yet Lazarus was risen from the dead. And that's part of the story here too, right? That's part of the vision. Right. right. And God wants to, it's his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality and, and eternal life of man. Not just immortality, because I know we say, okay, yes, everyone will have immortality, including those sons of perdition. But he wants to bring the past, the immortality and eternal life of man. And he's God. He's pretty clever. He's pretty powerful. My God is powerful. He can do all things. So we, we do have, you know, like I was saying, competing narratives here, um, because one of the ways to frame this is, yes, it's, it's, um, it's not that God couldn't, it's that the the will on the side of that which is lost is that it wants to stay lost, right? There is that, yes. And I don't necessarily need to get into a discussion about that, but um, there's a lot of, I, I've thought through a lot of this and I don't necessarily need to arrive at a conclusion. I think it's, I think it's useful and spiritually edifying, at least it has been to me, humbling to, to ponder and meditate on these things and and especially in light of Christ's parables that he teaches about prodigal son and and things like that. Yes. I, I think there's a lot to be to be found there. Whether ultimately it ends up that that it is possible for for perdition, that which is lost to be found or not, I think the the notion that 
that we can have the the love that Christ does so that when something like this is the case that we truly feel that that deep sense of sorrow and and weeping you know we, we just saw the greatest glory of God and and Christ who sits at his right hand and and then when this this event quote unquote happens there's there's weeping there's sorrow there's sadness you know this is this is uh, reminiscent of of the vision that Enoch has, where he sees God cry because of what is is happening among his children. I don't want to say unique, but but special in LDS theology that that God experiences sorrow, right, and and can actually have these these deep emotions that that come from his his tender love for his children. Later in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about inheriting uh, exaltation as being experiencing all heights and depths. And that goes along with what we're talking about here, you know, in terms of the, the ascension and descension, all heights and all depths. Later, when uh, as he continues talking about this topic of perdition, he says, the end, so this is over in verse 45, the end thereof, neither the place thereof, nor that their torment no man knows, neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will be revealed unto man, except to them who are made partakers thereof. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, show it by vision unto many, but straightway shut it up. Wherefore, the end, the width, the height, the depth, and the misery thereof, they understand not, neither any man except those who are ordained unto this condemnation. I think this raises the question of, of whether God really knows what it's like. And I think the answer to that has to be yes, but then that raises another question. Well, how? How does God know what that experience is like? I think the clue here in verse 46, it says, except to them who are made partakers thereof. And I cannot imagine anything less than than this experience being part of what the atonement was, that Christ experiencing what it meant to be lost, what it meant to be in outer darkness, must have been part of the experience of the atonement. How else could he really understand? How else could the atonement truly be infinite and eternal without that experience? You know, Ben, my understanding of this moment of uh, that Jesus has on the cross, where he says, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" is, at least, my understanding has been something like the Spirit has withdrawn from him, and he's and he's never actually felt bereft of it. Um, and yet, I'm not sure if that if I should take it that literally, you know. You know, something something you said there about the heights and the depths reminded me of that quote from Joseph Smith, Thy mind, O man, that quote. Do you know that quote? Uh, not coming to mind. Yeah, not sure. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and sink or search into and contemplate the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse. He must commune with God. I think, you know, that's this vision. 
that's what happens to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in this vision. And if I could try to tie a knot on something I said earlier where, you know, where I said one thing and you said another, and, and I don't feel like you disagreed with me at all. And yet I thought, let me expand here on my thought and try to try to bring the two together, what you said and what I said. And that is this idea that I'm trying to express the idea that, that God would naturally take us back. He would, he would accept us, right? If, if, and if something could be lost, if it could be found, God could find it. Right. Now, if we don't want to be found, right? Right. As, as the scriptures tell us, Jesus is there knocking, but we have to open. If we're not willing to open and let him in, okay, then, then he can't come in. He's not going to force himself upon us. We can us. keep running away from him, but he's going to keep right. running after us. <laughs> There's, oh, I love that. That's so awesome. And as soon as we turn and start, you know, take one step to him, he comes running to us too, right? Yeah. So there's all of that. And the idea that that really, unless we don't want to be with, with God, we can be with God. It may take a while. Uh, it's it's going to take me a long time. And, and I don't know whether it's going to be a long time in this life um, or whether it's going to be a long time in the next life. My wife is probably hoping it happens in this life, and she's already told me that she may not want me in the eternities if it doesn't happen in this life, right? But but I think it's I think it's possible for God, right? For, for God, all things are possible, mm-hmm. and I can do it not of my own self, but I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, right? This is my favorite scripture from Philippians, right? Four is it four thirteen or three fourteen? I always. One of those doesn't exist. It's the one that exists out of those two. You know, so I think that's, I think that's possible, but of course we have to want it. So it, it's interesting because to me, I look at it, I look at this whole chapter, this whole section and the parts that have to do with the people who don't get into whatever degree of glory. It looks to me like they just don't want it. If they would want it, they could have it, right? The, the, whatever that takes, it's possible. And they don't want it. And I just imagine, you know, I can't imagine inviting someone to church with me and telling them how much they're missing out and them just being like, meh, you know, they're just not interested. It's not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to say, but you're missing out and they're just not going to feel it, Ben. <laughs> they're, just, they're, just, they're not going to feel it. So until they come to that realization themselves and, and can they, and can that happen later again? Do we believe that God progresses? Because I think we do, actually. We talk about perfection, and perfection is something that's often misunderstood. We say that to be perfect is some final destination, but that's not what perfect means. Perfect means complete, and we can be complete now and more complete later, right? Because we grow, and and I just can't imagine. This is something that, that we have on other theologies, if you want to put it that way. It's a competition, right? But, you know, really, seriously, we have this idea that even God progresses and that he doesn't actually know what's going to happen in some sense. He doesn't know what Ben's going to do. I mean, maybe he knows He knows Ben. Ben is his son. I know my son. And yet he can surprise me. And I think we can surprise God. And I don't think, I don't think that's part of anybody else's theology. And it may not even be a part of ours, but I think it is. <laughs> it could be. I've, I've seen, you know, I've read different theories on that one more recently that I thought was a particularly interesting take on it, that that it didn't challenge omniscience per se, but it challenged the conventional, traditional concept of omniscience. And I thought right. it was a really interesting formulation right. of it. You know, the, it, to that point, you know, if we are 
co-eternal with God, which is what Latter-day Saint theology posits. And, and Joseph Smith talks about when we get to section 93, we'll be talking about that. Then time isn't a thing. And whether whether we do it now or later, that's immaterial. That's that's irrelevant, right? Because it, it's not a matter of of how long it takes to get something done. Because Right. You know, it doesn't matter how long it takes, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is why, which is why it doesn't really matter if it took 5 billion years to create the earth. Right. Yeah. Cause who cares? Like, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and by the way, this doesn't mean put it off. Remember, sure. if you knew how yeah. good the celestial kingdom would be, you would right. kill yourself just to get there. Right. Sure. And again, please don't try this at home, but <laughs> you know, I think again, the truth is round. I always like to say the truth is round, right? All truth can be encompassed in one great whole. And all of these things can be true at the same time. And a lot of times our expressions of the truth only go so far. And we can have another expression of the truth over here that goes so far. And the two of them seem to be in contradiction. But that's because, again, we're dealing with things that are ineffable. We do our best to put them into words. and. Who knows? But the, you know, I like I like the I like the final answer of the Islamic theologians when there's any kind of debate about whatever in Islamic theology. The the theologians, even if they disagree with each other, they're humble enough to say, in the end, "Wallahu alam," and God knows best. <laughs> I mean, one of the verses here that I think sort of hints at this concept we're talking about is is verse 33. And it doesn't start off that way, but it's the last two words. It says, for they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity. And I, I think that preposition there in instead of for is really telling because oh, yeah. we, you know, we say for eternity as if it's like this span of time. But when they say in eternity, in eternity isn't talking about time in our in our temporal uh, mortal construct, it's talking about a state of being, right? And and when you're in that state of being or or metaphysical place, so to speak, that is is who you are in that moment. And it seems like, well, this is just who I am. This is how I'm always going to experience things. But the the point of repentance is that you're changing your perception, and so the reality that you that you live in changes and all of a sudden yeah. everything you know epistemologically becomes different and so i really like how that word is used there in eternity doomed to suffer it says the wrath of god with the devil and his angels in eternity not well, for eternity and we've had eternity just defined for us earlier in the doctrine and covenants too eternal is my name so eternal yeah. punishment means my punishment it doesn't mean for a very long time right yeah. and we're, yeah. we're we're not I don't know calculus. Do you know calculus? Uh, I don't. It's not relevant here. It doesn't matter, right? It's yeah. we're not talking about infinity. We're talking about eternity, which is one of God's names. And so, yeah, that's a really good point you bring up, Ben. Yeah. So this next verse kind of goes along with that. Concerning whom I have said, there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come, having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified Him un to themselves and put him to an open shame. This no forgiveness can be termed, and maybe it was conceptualized this way at the time, in terms of like, they won't be forgiven of these sins that they've committed. But I think that 
uh, on, on a more like personal fundamental level, this also means that they within themselves are not a forgiving being, right? And so like, they're not willing to forgive reality. And so they can't move forward and progress because they're denying the spirit that would bring them to that. So they're, they're holding this grudge against reality, never able to move forward and, and conquer that, to overcome that, so to speak. And that's damnation. That's what you're describing right. as damnation, right. being exactly. damned, being, not being able to move forward. They're stopped. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's why it talks about it in those terms. It's like, as long as you remain within that perception and mindset, there's absolutely zero ability for you to move forward and progress. So of course you're doomed and you're damned at that point. You're living in hell in eternity, right? Because yes. you can't you can't break out of that reality or you can't break out of that experience without changing your perception of reality. You have to be able you have to be willing to forgive that reality and move forward and accept it. Yes. We have to be able to accept reality. It's so powerful, you know. I mean, I think for me, one of the, one of the notions, one of the, one, one of part of my understanding of the fall is this, the, the dichotomy. So everything is a unity before the fall, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we, we partake of the, the fruit. We fall into duality from unity to duality. And in this duality, we get stories about what's going on. Not just that things are what they are. But we have a story about it. And this is the kind of thing that I think, as I understood you were saying, Ben, that you have this story that you just are holding on to that's not reality. Mm. Right? Is this what you're saying? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so you've you've got to be able to let go of your stories and come back to reality. And the reality is the unity of all existence, the unity of God and man. And we're just so caught up, especially as Americans, and our religion is an American religion. It's globalized, but it's an American religion of, with this idea of individuality. And I think I think we have a lot to learn about unity, put it that way. Well, that, that's a really interesting point that you bring up in light of verse 35 that I just read. I hadn't quite made this connection before because they actually are denying that unity by denying, denying the Holy Ghost otherizing Christ himself by by crucifying and putting him to an open shame this is this is their way of completely otherizing the Christ within themselves their right. true self and it's and it's a rejection of that unity to to an otherization of reality itself as if you know reality is completely against them rather than saying no this is actually part of who I am and I'm going to accept it and move forward with it so that that's actually really interesting it's just what is. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as it goes on, there's a discussion. It gets into the gospel, which is, which is a, you know, it, it's really a natural flow here for me because it's saying, look, this is the reality you can live in, but this is how you get out of that. This is how you Here's change your news. reality. Here's the good news is that Christ came. He, he actually uh, willingly experienced all that so that you can follow him, follow his way change your perception of of who God is and your relationship with him accept reality and and be saved and and it's just it's great let me say something about following him in this in his experience because 
we t- this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. We talk about Christ descended, right? And we talked, I've shared the quote about ascending and descending thy mind, O man. And we have the whole of section 76 that we are talking about. We say that, that Jesus descended below all things. And again, there's this idea on the one hand, so that he could understand what we're going through. On the other hand, we say something like he did it so that we wouldn't have to. And yet, personally, I feel like I've, I have. Hmm. Um, I, I, that, that's somehow not working for me, <laughs> you know? I, I would say, I mean, maybe, sorry to interrupt you and say you're going to yeah. get this. I would say, so we wouldn't have to alone. Mm, I like that a lot. I love that. He did it alone, so we wouldn't have to alone. I, I'll have to think about that. I really like the sound. It tastes good. I like the sound of it. So, but, but to, just to continue with my thought, and I'll definitely think about that some more. You know, he, if we think about it the other way, not the way you expressed it, then, so there, so there's, there you go from Ben and now from me. (laughs) Hopefully there's some good stuff here for you. You know, him going through it doesn't do anything. You know, him going, descending below all things doesn't really do anything for me. Right. You could think of it that way. Except that unless, that is, unless he's an example for me to follow, right. what if I would be willing to go all the way down into it? And what if I could come out the other side? And here I'm borrowing from Pastor Rob Bell. He's got this great um, sermon. Pastor Rob Bell wanted to revive the art of the sermon, and he, and he did. He's really good at it. And this particular sermon is called An Introduction to Joy, and it deals with the the meaningless, meaningless, meaningless part from Ecclesiastes. And it starts off like a comedy special that turns into a sermon. He has another one that I call a Lerman that starts off on a, as a lecture on, um, on evolution that turns into a sermon, something like that. But in this particular sermon, which is more like a comedy special that turns into a sermon, he points out that if we, the cynic sort of dips his toe in this stuff of life that we find so difficult, right? The hell that life can sometimes be because hell is, let's face it, it's right here, it's right now. It can be, at least it can be. And it has been for me at times. And he just sort of dips his toe and says, oh, things are really, really bad, man. And, but he doesn't, he's not willing to go into it. He's lazy. If we follow Christ and go all the way into that, we can come out the other side and experience a joy, not not happiness that has this, you know, happy, unhappy duality, right? This, this polarity of this duality, but, but a joy that it, that it can actually include all of the pain and suffering and all the hell and embrace it. And so ultimately what, uh, Pastor Rob Bell teaches in the sermon is whenever the cynic shows up, whether within you or without you, and he starts saying, Oh man, things are so bad. You should say, Oh no, no. It's even worse than that. We're all gonna die. <laughs> We're all gonna right. die, right? And just and just embrace that. And so we should probably all have another round. Embrace nihilism. Yeah, we should probably all have another round because we're all gonna die, right? <laughs> this is sort of the idea of, of again expressed in, in Ecclesiastes as as taught by Pastor Rob Bell. And I think it, again, it shows us the possibility. Me bringing these two ideas together showed me at least the possibility of us following the model of the Savior, being, being willing to go into the pain, being willing to go into the, the hell, to descend, as the quote of Joseph Smith says, to be able to, to ascend and descend all the way, right? And to, to make that descent all the way down and come out the other side 
and, and it's going to be okay. Yeah. Right? And he, and again, you've pointed out that we don't have to do it alone. Yeah. I can do I, all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can do this. I can go all the way down into it and I can come out okay on the other side with Christ. You know, there's in section 123, there's Joseph Smith sort of having this conversation with God about all the trials he's going through. And there's sort of that concept of, hey, you know, even if you went through all the worst things that you could possibly imagine, Christ, you know, really went through everything and came out of it. And there's this implicit that, you know, the the deeper you go, you know, the greater you are. <laughs> the deeper you descend into that, the greater you are, because there's the question, art thou greater than he? You know, almost like, you know, you really aren't, you really aren't experiencing everything that you you could be in terms of hell, right? You're going to make it out of this because this is the way, you know, and, and Christ has has paved the way, so to speak, in terms of uh, it's it's possible. This is the way through, and this is the only way through. So, um, you know, that, that kind of comes up later in, in terms of that concept. Elder Holland some years ago gave a talk about Christ and the atonement, and, and he talked about it in terms of him doing things alone, and that there were these moments where where he had to be alone in order to experience that loneliness, and that um, so often in our in our life we you know the moments of of most extreme pain and difficulty um, it seems are are associated with loneliness, and I don't. Uh, you know, earlier when I said, you know, Christ did it so we don't have to do it alone. I don't mean that to mean that like, if you do feel alone, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's yeah. simply me to say that you, in those moments, you can look to the example of Christ and realize that, that your experience isn't wholly unique in the sense that you can't, that you aren't experiencing something that's so bad that you can't overcome it, that you can and Christ showed us that that you can make it out of that and and like you said find greater meaning and fulfillment and even joy um on the other side of that no matter no matter how long quote unquote that takes right <laughs> or mm-hmm. how how deep that is yeah and by the way if it seems like it takes a long time let's go back to that that cosmic consciousness that that cosmic that cosmic perspective that you brought up earlier ben where what's how many billions of years did you say <laughs> among friends? Well, I think right? the geological estimate is something like five billion years, you know, from the what's formation. Five billion, of the world. Yeah, what's five billion years among friends, right? Or what's five billion years in an eternity in, 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 the, in God's economy, put it that way? Sure. Doesn't that sure. term show up in this, in this section too, God's economy, or it's in the commentary? No, I haven't. It, that, that, does, that term doesn't show up in the section itself. Uh, there may okay. be some commentary about it there's, or whatever. There's something to do with God's economy because that, that's what this whole thing is about, right? The, the management right. Of, of God's management of his household, right? So to speak, right. his kingdom. Yeah. That's yeah. what this is all about. How the play is going to, to progress forward and, and Yes, I would love out. that you said play. You know, I thought of this in terms of a play and I meant to bring it up. When we look at the structure of this, right? It's again a series of visions, and, and mm-hmm. as I as you recounted how as I recounted how it how it showed up how it happened, you can see that this is a series of visions, and that there's Joseph Smith and Sidney Reagan checking each other, and they're getting multiple times that they need to record this, 
and you're getting these these acts, right? I think of it like a play, and and that's what again made me think of Dante, right, in his three his three canticles and his comedy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- this idea of you know first there's this part, then there's, so here we are in the highest of heavens. Now we descend to the lowest depths, and then we ascend again. And of course, we have to go by steps and by degrees, and and go through the different degrees of what it means to be. And we could call them states. Right, we could call these states. We think of them metaphysically. I think, oftentimes, in terms of these are places, these are you know metaphysical realities of places you can be, versus states, as we've already suggested, and 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 as I'd encourage listeners to consider, the idea that these can be states of being. Right, and and I think uh, that that's that's a very good way to conceptualize it, and it may turn out that those things aren't wholly. Uh, different concepts at the yeah. at the end, you know, from right. an eternal perspective. Sure. And if we're dealing with an ascension text here, which it seems obvious to me we are, and if it really does, no matter what kind of a roller coaster ride it looks like, if it really does follow the general form of of a descent and then an ascent, which again goes through what we could call stations, I start to think in, as an and as and as as an Islamicist in terms of makamat, um, in terms of uh, uh, states in the Sufi ascension texts, yeah, right? That yeah. there are states of the soul. And if we think of eternal progression, then you can see how you can ascend through these different states, ultimately to return to God and to a unity with God. Man, that's awesome. Truly awesome. I mean that. We overuse the word. This is awesome <laughs> stuff we're dealing with here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that, this is supposed to be the big picture, right? It is. And we've, the got, plan of we've got a really high level view of this. And, and every once in a while, you know, the, the idea is that they're trying to zoom in and give us concepts of this, but the, the, the 30,000, you know, foot mm-hmm. view of this is mind blowing, you know, <laughs> is mind blowing. And, and when you try to zoom in on any particular part and describe it, you, you by just the very nature of doing that, you lose sight of the whole. And so yes. it, it, it really bears out those last verses that say, look, you know, we try to zoom in and describe this. And then as soon as we do it, we're, we're not paying justice to the whole. And so then we try to zoom out and describe it. And then it's like, well, but it's so, this picture is so large and so high resolution that, that it's difficult to say, you know, it's like looking at the earth from space, you, you get one picture. Okay. Yes. You're seeing the whole earth, but you're not really seeing anything that's going on at all. And so you zoom in to a city and you, oh yeah, there's all these people doing this and this and that. But like all the things, these little tiny ants of people that are doing here and there don't really give you an idea of what's really going on in the broader universe, right? So then you zoom out to the universe and it's like, yeah, but you know, so <laughs> it's very difficult to get a, a a high resolution view of this that that also takes into account, you know, the details. And I think this with this section, you know, even as long as it is, like it's it's such a it's such an overview and summary that that we really have have very little idea of what what these things actually are. It's more like these symbolic introductions to these concepts that we've had to sort of bear out and think about in our in our mind over time. You know, w- before when we were talking, Christopher, you brought up the language in this and and how we might compare it to especially the the poem that's written in to to sort of go along with this and how we might compare that to something like divine comedy that that Dante wrote 
And um, there's the hesitation there because, you know, we don't take Dante as a an official prophet per se, right? Whereas we have this revelation from Joseph, we don't even call the Divine Comedy a, a revelation. But if you go and you actually read it, there's there's quite a bit of profound truth there, even if there's a lot in it that we might say uh, from an LDS perspective is heresy, right? There's there's a lot to be learned there about the nature of man and his actual and perceived relationship with God. You know, if the stated mission of quote-unquote Mormonism is that we seek truth everywhere and and we want to bring that in, I think that it's okay and appropriate for us to look at a text like that for what it is and say, what, what truth can we pull from this? What parallels can we see from it? And what value does it provide us? Uh, come now, Ben. We cannot say uh, it is okay <laughs> to read the comedy. We must. It is an imperative. It's imperative to. It our is culture, an imperative sure. to read Dante's comedy. <laughs> I agree. L- I let agree. me go on record here as saying. <laughs> In fact, you must go and spend years learning Italian so that you can read the actual original. Yes, <laughs> it's so worth it. You know, you reminded me. I've been watching a series of lectures. It's something that faith matters, and one of the universities in Utah, I can't remember which one, co-hosted New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. And this relates not only to his, I'll say, so-called translation, if you're interested in that question of what is meant by translation in the context of Joseph Smith. Yeah, we discussed this on our last, Chilo and I discussed this on our last podcast. Right, and that's probably a good place to look, yeah, to look too. But uh, this is another uh, resource you could turn to, is this conference or some great talks. And one of them, uh, Jared Hickman, talks about this idea of zooming in and zooming out. He's doing it in the context of the Book of Mormon, where it looks like Joseph Smith really has these panoramic visions, which you can really see in this section, right, in 76. And he zooms in and out. And he actually has these, as Jared Hickman puts it, he seems to converse with, I'll just say that, he converses with the figures that we see and the the characters we see in the Book of Mormon, the the people, he he goes in he goes into their time, and he comes out. In fact, Lucy Mac Smith told us that Joseph Smith would sit around in the evenings and tell her and others all these details about what they looked like and what their buildings were like and their clothes and what they ate and all these details. And so I just can't help but wonder if when Joseph Smith is translating, if Jared Hickman might be onto something here, where he's actually. Uh, Jared Hickman didn't call it time travel, but he was in a much more academic setting than we are. But it looks something like that. It looks like he's, well, it's a vision, right? Yeah, he's having a vision rather than, well, we already know he's not reading Reformed Egyptian, uh, Hebrew Mm -hmm. and Reformed Egyptian script, right? Right. Uh, So what's going on? Is he taking dictation from a, a divine teleprompter or is he having a vision? I go, you know, I think the latter is probably the case. Some of one and some of the other. Yeah. So he does have this experience of zooming in and zooming out. And and again, yes, if you if you want the if you want the whole thing, right? And you weren't there with Lucy Mac Smith and company hearing more than what's in the text, it's still available to you. It, he's inviting us. He really looks at the text itself. The text has these references that just sort of pull you in and just sort of invite you to participate. In what Joseph Smith is up to, and to be able to actually have your own experience of this, there's a, there's really an invitation there, and it's pretty explicit at, at points. 
So I invite listeners to look for that and to consider that invitation and consider accepting that invitation. It's just that we can we can make the scriptures a talisman and an idol, or we can use them to have our own experience. But we, we sometimes we, we hold them at arm's length and either we say, I can't understand this. You know, Nephi says the words of Isaiah plain and simple, or what does he say? They're something like that. And yet for me, they're not. I don't get Isaiah, right? Something like that. We say things like this. Or we say, again, we just, we already know what this is saying. We just, you read some, I mean, there's a section, what is it? 67, 70, somewhere in there in that week's reading, the same week that you guys covered uh, what you were this translation business, where some of the things that are, are pretty convoluted. And you know, you do a close reading and you find this makes no sense. What what are even what are the reference to you know to these pronouns? I remember I think it's section 70, if I'm not mistaken. That that section has some things where, by the way, it's multiple revelations in one section. It helps to know that. But even when you know that, where are the reference to these pronouns? It's not clear. And so if we, it's one or the other, right? We can either say, you know, I can't understand this, or we actually gloss over these pronouns that don't have clear reference, and we say, oh, I, I get this, I know what it's saying. And either way, we're missing the opportunity to actually use the scriptures as a vehicle, as you put it, as a, what did you call it? I'm going to say a jumping catalyst. off point. A catalyst, thank you. A catalyst to spark, to ignite the fire of the spirit in our souls. You know, elsewhere in this section, and I'm, for some reason I'm not finding the word, the verse, it talks about how, you know, the extents of, of the work of the Lord we we can't know, we can't discover. And it it reminded me, you know, we were talking about the zooming in and zooming out thing. It reminded me of this, this story that I read, and, and I had photos as well, of this time when they had um, just gotten the Hubble telescope online. And they they were discovering things you know, with stars and galaxies that they just had never known existed before. And they they had this thought, hey, let's point the telescope at the absolute blackest, darkest part of the sky that we know of, where we know we've never seen anything. And they pointed it there and they left it there for a while. And then they got this high resolution photo of it. And you zoom in on this and there are thousands of of galaxies in this spot that was previously completely black to us without to us. the tool right without exactly. the telescope yeah and yes. <laughs> so it just kind of brings up this point that it's just like if they're having this vision of all of these things they really are just scratching the surface of trying to describe yeah. what's going on uh, my grandfather was a, a patriarch and he once described when he would give blessings that that often it was like he was walking down an alley and seeing a lot of these things and just basically describing uh, everything that he could or what most stood out to him. But it wasn't even a, a small percentage of what he was seeing as he was kind of walking down this alley and what was presented to him about what, you know, who this person was. So, Wow, thanks for sharing that, Ben. That's, that's really cool. You know, in, in addition to what we saw through the Hubble Telescope, to again, thinking of that, thy mind, oh, oh man, right? That we have to be able to ascend to the highest and descend to the lowest and to think about what's out there that we saw through the Hubble telescope and to realize, I don't know if you've done this, Ben, but go get a retinal scan. 
and mm. you'll see that same picture. Mm. The microcosm is just as as mysterious and has the same depth and complexity and enormity as what is out there. What is in here and what is out there are mirrors of one another. Right. The inner and the outer, the microcosm or the macrocosm. Right. Right. We we have these are mysteries. Right. These are mysteries and they're they're not unlocked by words. They don't fit in words. Well, I say they're not unlocked, but they can be unlocked by words. They're not they don't fit in words, but they can be unlocked by words if we'll use them as a catalyst. The words are a catalyst. Just like they were for Joseph Smith. What was that verse again? It's not even the verse that most resembles the vision that he has. Right. Which, by the way, then includes the the what does. So he's asking the question based on this verse that talks about two degrees of anything, right? Either damnation or salvation. And what he gets is this vision of this whole shebang, man. And it includes uh, it includes the, the verbiage, it, ultimately, when he records it, of 1 Corinthians 15, right? Where you actually see these different degrees. It's incredible. What a ride. I mean, I'm telling you that the poetry of it, and, it, and W.W. Right. W. Phelps really helped me to see the poetry of it because the poetry is already there. It's just not in verse. Right. All Phelps does is put it in verse, but the poetry is there. The aesthetic of it is all there. And you say I can talk about this academically, but it sounds to me from our conversation prior to this recording that you're the actual poet here. <laughs> Do you have anything more to say about that? Not, not necessarily. Uh, it, it's really just – it's a pattern that I'd seen before, but I hadn't mapped it out as much. And I, I'll, I'm sure there's somebody out there that has done it in a, in a more elegant way, so I'd have to look and see if, if something like that. If not, I'll try to create something just in terms of, of seeing the patterns. And I think seeing like an overall pattern will help you sort of zoom in maybe at some crucial points and learn more about those crucial points than you might have if you hadn't seen the overall pattern, I guess to say. We were talking about this part where it goes through the gospel, and this is basically the reascension here out of, out of perdition, and it's done through the gospel, through Christ. He's the way, right, to, to ascend out of that perdition. And uh, so I like verse 42 here. It says that through him all might be saved, whom the Father had put into his power and made by him. So in my scriptures, you know, and in actually, I think in all the, the versions of the Doctrine and Covenants that people are going to have, that verse is at the end of page 139, and you don't see the other verse until you turn the page. And this verse, verse 42, sounds very Calvinistic to me. I don't know if it sounds Calvinistic to you. <laughs> yeah, but, sure. But it's like, uh, God, okay, there's these people that God is going to save. And Jesus came and he gave, you know, God gave him power to, to save those people. And they're the ones that are going to be saved. What's so interesting is that you turn the page and you get this verse 43. He says, who glorifies the father and saves all the works of his hands except those sons of perdition who deny the son after the father has revealed him. So there's always that little like except, right? <laughs> that is often thrown in these Dr. Covenants verses. He saves all those except those who don't want to be saved. Yeah, yeah. So I just think that that verse there saves all the works of his hands. You know, that, that goes back to that, that Lorenzo Snow quote. I don't know that I, did I? Lorenzo Snow says this. He says, God loves his offspring the human family. 
His design is not simply to furnish happiness to the few here called Latter-day Saints. The plan and scheme that he is now carrying out is for universal salvation. Not only for the salvation of the Latter-day Saints, but for the salvation of every man and woman on the face of the earth, for those also in the spirit world, and for those who may hereafter come upon the face of the earth. It is for the salvation of every son and daughter of Adam. They are the offspring of the Almighty. He loves them all, and his plans are for the salvation of the whole, and he will bring all up into that position in which they will be as happy and as comfortable as they are willing to be. Man, you know, it, it's, I said he saves all those except those who don't want to be saved. I left off from my early exegesis until they do. Sure. And ultimately, that was a great quote, Ben. Wow. Ultimately, he wants to save us all. It's his sure. work and his glory to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. What a great quote. You know, God is, is eternally patient. One of my favorite verses out of the book of Abraham talks about the creation. And it says, and the gods ordered things and watched until they obeyed. Mm. It's like there's no discussion of like things needing to happen in a hurry. And hey, we've got a deadline. I, I, told, I told Elohim that the earth was going to be done in six days. <laughs> And we've only got uh, 24 hours to do Let's the plants, go, guys. and we've only got 24 hours to do the animals. And so we need to get this thing going here, you know? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so the just the way that the book of Abraham sort of outlines the creation is, is just so insightful to me and really reveals to me a lot about the character of God and, and, and how he does his work is that he gives this and he gives out grace and love. You know, John says, God loved us first. And he does that and invites and, and orders things, right? Gives them laws and then sits back and watches. And maybe sits back isn't the right word. I, I see him actually actively engaged and cheerleading. The, the watching is an active thing. It's not, it's not a passive thing. It's an active expectation or maybe expectation isn't the right word, but uh, um I can't think of the right word for it, but watching works. <laughs> I love that, Ben. That just brings this image of Ben, Ben, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. <laughs> I love it. So here then we we proceed into, um, a- after the gospel, we've ascended back up to a celestial state here. Uh, because you've, you've proceeded through Christ, Christ is the way, you arrive at this celestial standard. And then we get into these, a lot of verses are, they are they who, they are they who. And it's a very interesting way of, of introducing the concept of a descriptive rather than prescriptive, right? So this is talking about all those who attain celestial glory. And it's not saying in order to get into the celestial kingdom, you have to do a, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's saying, oh, I saw these people in the celestial kingdom and th- let me describe them. Uh, they were people like this and they were yeah. people like this. And, and, and this was what they were kind of like. And, and again, it's this zoom in that Joseph Smith does. And he's trying to describe the character of, of the people and beings who he's seeing there. And, it, and it's not a checklist. It's simply uh, his best way of describing what he's seeing. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. Thinking of the idea of an ascension and, and having stations or states, right? 
you can see this is just the idea of these are the people who are here, right? Yeah. And then these are the people who are here. Yeah. Again, a description of what it appears to be. Or, or put another way, this is this is where these uh, this is where these people are at. This is the this is what it looks like to be at this level, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So there's that that all the description of the celestial kingdom and state, which again is is almost like a restating for like something like twenty plus verses of of this, and it it kind of it's reminiscent of these things these times where I will try to describe something and I literally say the same thing like five times just in a different way every time. And I still at the end feel like I haven't explained it. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Uh, absolutely. But I, I almost feel like that's what's happening here with Joseph Smith. Is he's like every verse he's trying to describe who these people are and what they're doing. And at the end, he's just like, it was kind of like that. And that could explain <laughs> sort of the roller coaster nature of it sure. that you've described. And another idea that occurred to me just now is the idea, the beatitudinal idea that maybe the reason that we're seeing these, these cycles, let's call them cycles, right? Because we have highs and lows and we have the, the troughs and yeah, the valleys yeah. is that because this is a process, again, if it is an ascension and if it is, if there is progression, uh, which I believe there is, then perhaps it isn't just in this straight line. Perhaps it's this this where again like the beatitudes where you start and you end in the same place and you you sort of have to it's like okay i've emptied myself of all my ego i am so proud of myself oops <laughs> time to start over again sure, right sure that's a, yeah, something yeah, like that so it could be not only that there's a progression but there i see the possibility that there's a progression and that maybe you sort of go in circles as you go up right you go one step forward two steps back or something like that yeah, that's that's a good point. I don't know how to frame it. It, it could be that there are um, mini regression or mini regressions going on here with stuff. My brother once explained, and I think I've brought it up before, that it's like a spiral, like a three dimensional spiral. Like if yes. you think of a spring, yes. where it's it's going in circles. And if you just look yes. at it from one perspective, you just look at something. And it's like they're just going in circles. But if you if you change your perspective, you see that it's actually you know yes. going up. I'm, so, you know what? I'm taking your brother's word. It's your brother, right? Yeah. I'm taking your brother's wording and I'm putting in my, putting it in my living Christ. You see, I was struggling with the words there, Ben. Yeah. I'm trying, this is exactly what we're talking about here. I couldn't put in the words what I was seeing. And then your brother has the words. Right. And it's like, yes, that's it. That's what I'm trying to say. I love it. That's what I think is so useful about going to texts like uh, Divine Comedy or, or, you know, whatever else that might be comparable to this, you, you know, you listed half a dozen of them. Uh, because often we, we have our own experiences and we will read section 76 and some of it will fit, will ring true to us and other parts of it may not quite ring true to us. We go to these other experiences and we might find things and they're like, ooh, that's a good expression of, of how I feel. And I've never been able to articulate it before. And now, now that this person has helped me articulate it, I understand better what's really going on in my experience. So, so what you're saying again, Ben, is, is listeners really should read the Divine Comedy, right? Oh, yeah. I have Absolutely. to say, seriously, you know, don't just read the Inferno. And in fact, oh, yeah. <laughs> even when you do read the Inferno, make sure when you finish it that you read at least the first few verses of, of, of Purgatorio, right? Of Purgatory. 
That's like reading, you know, in this section, we've got verses 26 through 38, which talk about perdition. Yes. And it's like reading just those verses. Just stop there, right? <laughs> yeah, don't stop there. You, you've got to go all the way through, you know, to the Empyrean with to the presence of God. Hmm. Purgatory is, is just fantastic. I mean, and, and don't skip Inferno, right? Because again, that's why is there always a catabasis? Why do you have to go down before you go up? There's something to that. There's something in that to ponder. Yeah. Yeah, we're constantly doing it in things, but it is hard to articulate why, right? I'm not sure if I can, I, I can come up with some things, but I'm not sure if I can satisfactorily articulate why that would be the you case. You know, Ben, I don't know, I don't know that I could either, but I'm not even trying. I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> go think about that, you know? Sure. Or, or think about how you experience that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of, it's just how it is. We, we have to go down before we can go up. There's something about that. And you see it in all these ascension texts. It's always that way. This is good stuff. There's a bit of this curve here. We, we go to the celestial and then we come down a little bit. There's a description of the terrestrial um, state. Again, they are they who, these are those who, and then telestial. And then we start, we come back up again and a brief mention of terrestrial in verse 91 and then it goes back to celestial and it's almost like you know he's like you said he's coming back to this and being like oh there's there's something else i wanted to say about that 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 maybe now that i've i've gone through those others helps explain it a little more and and this constant back and forth of of trying to zero in and and better articulate really what it is that's a good explanation ben i, I really like verse 94 it says they who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen, and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace. And I, I don't know what else to say about that. It speaks for itself, Ben. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that either. <laughs> These next verses, it again goes back down into terrestrial and telestial discussions. And, and one of the things that have always kind of been odd and, and puzzling to me is this, this long listing of names of discussion here about people that are in the telestial kingdom. And, and verse 100, these are they who say they are some of one and some of another, some of Christ and some of John and some of Moses, some of Elias and some of Isaiah and some of Isaiah and some of Enoch. As I was kind of thinking about this, I realized that, again, this is a descriptive thing of these people. And I realized that there were moments throughout these descriptions of the different kingdoms that they were actually describing things that I've experienced myself. And this goes back to our discussion or uh, the thing that we were positing about this being not exclusively, but importantly epistemological rather than just metaphysical description here that these are, are states of being and that as we read through each one of these uh, conditions of telestial or terrestrial or celestial we will often f uh, see something that resonates with our own personal experience we'll say you know what i i know a moment where i was actually existing within a telestial reality and I know a moment where I was actually existing with a terrestrial reality, or, or I know a moment when I actually had a glimpse of what it was to experience a celestial reality. And it's almost as if 
in our mortal state, we're actually from day to day able to get little glimpses of these these different things, even though we may say we live in a telestial world, which you know you brought up earlier that it says in here uh, explicitly that the telestial world surpasses all our understanding. It's like way better than what we're even experiencing right now. You know, we're something between telestial and outer darkness, I guess. Yeah. And so as I was reading this verse, I, uh, I realized that, okay, so like there are times when I, I may act this way, you know, I re- I like some things that Jesus says, but you know, like I'm not willing to accept everything because it's, it's really difficult. You know, there's some stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that I'm just not quite sure about, right? I'm not sure if I can really fully accept that. So I, I really like what this philosopher says and everything like that. And it's it's not to say that we shouldn't go to philosophers and pull truth out of them and everything. It's we often fragment the truth. And like you were talking about before, that rather than than being willing to bring it into one and accept it as reality, we often we often try to fragment it in our life, and I think that's what this is kind of talking about, that we're not willing to to unify our being or perception of reality. We're, we're trying to live in a bunch of different places at once. Yeah, or we're not even trying, you know, we're not even necessarily saying, I'm willing to accept this, but not this. We, we may even say to ourselves and to others that we really do accept it all, but we just don't have a celestial understanding. Hmm. Right? Yeah. We just, we're, we're at a different we're in a different state. We're in a different place. We're in a different uh, state in, among these states uh, in this ascension. And and we may oscillate and we may spiral. And who knows, maybe, you know, the image of the, of the spiral going upward uh, really worked for me. But back to the idea of the roller coaster, we may have our ups and our downs too. Right. These may both be true at the same time. Um, try, I don't know how what that looks like if you try to draw it, Ben. <laughs> but that's possible too, right? And so, yeah, you know, we we really do, let's say, wholeheartedly accept all of the teachings of the Savior, and yet we have our whatever other ideas that get in the way of our understanding of that, such that we don't really know what, we don't really understand what he's teaching. One of the things that I would say that we have to do is just to be willing to empty ourselves of again, I'm not saying don't go to the. I'm a philosopher. I'm not saying don't go to the philosophers. Brigham Young himself said we have to learn to believe correctly, think correctly, and act correctly. That's philosophy. That's metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Right? To believe, mm-hmm. think, and act. Mm-hmm. To you know, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. That's what philosophy is all about. And and to do so in a systematic way. So I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying. Whatever it, that's a that's a method, right? That philosophical method is a good method, but again, it only goes so far. Like so many things we talk about, especially in the Latter Day Contemplation podcast, things only they're valuable and they're useful until they're not, because again, we're expressing things in words and concepts that just can't be fully expressed or correctly in words, and so when words fail. Then what, right? So when your logic fails, yeah. when your when your rational um, when your ratiocination fails, then what? And the answer is inspiration, revelation. But we have to be willing to empty ourselves of all those philosophies of men mingled with scripture, right? And we have to be able to go into the scriptures and use them as our own urim and thummim, 
to liken the scriptures unto ourselves, to use them again as a catalyst to ignite the spirit, the fire of the spirit, in our bones and in our soul and in our hearts, right? And to be able to have an experience of God that teaches us what words can't teach us, not the ones in the scripture where the prophets did the best they could to express the, the ineffable in words, that which can't actually be expressed in words, nor in the philosophers who did their best according to their ratiocination. So neither the fully ratiocinative, neither the fully mystical really expresses all of it. Neither one of them nor both of them put together does. We have to have an experience of God. A direct, immediate experience of God. And, and that's the thing, right? That's the whole thing. That's the thing underneath the thing, underneath the thing, underneath the thing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's like the, the, the whole goal is not the right word, but, you know, purpose of the gospel. We have what the, we call these, you know, fourth, fourth article of faith stuff, right? Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, and all of that is in preparation to receive the Holy Ghost. And that's that experience, that communion with God where, where that truth can be made manifest to us personally rather than simply symbolically or or through some sort of verbal or linguistic type of articulation right now ben since we almost didn't share a great quote because we, we weren't sure if we had and you definitely hadn't did we already <laughs> share the quote about uh not being able to because we received the gift of the holy ghost right um but can we commit that that unpardonable sin? Can the average Latter-day Saint commit that unpardonable sin? Did we cover that? We didn't. So there's there's quite a few different quotes on this subject, you know. So there's this there's basically as you read through the different commentaries or quotes from prophets on this concept, you get the idea that these quote unquote sons of perdition that we end up calling them are are very few in number. Again, there's no stated number that I know of anywhere. Not like the, what was it you said earlier, the sands of the sea in the telestial kingdom? Sure. Yeah. Telestial kingdom says, you know, innumerable. And, and actually, I don't think we even said that, that quote yet on, on the recording. There's a couple more quotes I want to get to after this as well. But, you know, Joseph Smith said of perdition, you know, that a person must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens open to him and know God and then sin against him. He said earlier in this quote, basically, it's something like seeing the sun and then denying that it's shining. You know, the idea is that you're rejecting reality. Right. And we already talked about that, what that looks yeah, like. And, yeah. And if that's hard to understand or grasp, I think that's the point. <laughs> you know, so then here's this quote from Spencer W. Kimball. He says, the sin against the Holy Ghost requires such knowledge that it is manifestly impossible for the rank and file to commit such a sin. So again, reading between the lines here, we're to understand, I believe, that we're talking about very few people. So Ben, if, if my kid gets baptized and receives the, the gift of the Holy Ghost and then strays from the path and leaves the church, are you saying he's not a son of perdition? Not what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is something else entirely. And there's a way back. And there's the prodigal son. And sure. there's... All of these things we've been talking about. I would say if anyone has any desire whatsoever to yes. come to God, and that's, and you know, but I should 
estate explicitly here, coming to God is not synonymous with being a member of the church. You know, however we want to articulate or or, or formulate our, our narrative as um, as members of the church or ordinances or whatever, that that really is not the thing here. Now, Joe, uh, yeah. Lorenzo Snow talked about this. We just right. read that. I was, quote just, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, membership in the church is has uh, is is not the thing here. Is that if there's ever a desire from a person to achieve an an ideal, to come closer to God, to have a relationship with Him, then, you know that's sufficient evidence. If there's even a spark of that, there's sufficient evidence there that well, it's not lost because it wants to be found, right? Yeah. Anything that wants to be found is is not lost. <laughs> so that's a good point. Now it does raise the question of, well, uh, you know, in this section we talked about Satan being fallen, and then in our in the plan of salvation narrative we have it says a third part or a third of the hosts of heaven that that follow after him. And so that does seem to be a large number, right? And, you know, we can take that third uh, literally as in like, okay, if God has three trillion children, that means one trillion, you know, followed Satan. Or we could simply take it to, to in, in the symbolic sense that means that like this was a significant number and it lends uh, weight to the statement that the heavens wept over him. Right. So – there was quite a um, a reaction to this vision revelation when it was first brought into the church. You know, this is very early days of the church. Is this 1832? Yeah, this is early 1832. I mean, the church hasn't even been an institution for two years yet when this comes in uh, to to being, so to speak. This this vision. I would I would love to just jump the gun and give my summary statement of the quote I believe you're about to read. (laughs) And that is, we just, it's not just then, even now, we just, we seem to be the ones who want people to go to hell. It's not God, it's us. Yeah, yeah. Why do I say that, Ben? Tell us, read us the quote. Well, so at the time, the, the general, at least American Christian sentiment was very heaven and hell, if yeah. You're, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. Somebody's going to go to hell, um, right? And and you know it's probably fifty fifty, right? Or or maybe it's maybe it's uh, you know way more people go to hell than heaven. I'm not sure uh, what what the, what their well, ratios you have, you were. Have pagans and you have unbaptized children. Sure. Yeah. So you have extremely few who are actually saved, and and the majority may be going to hell. You have you have Calvinism. You have Catholicism, right? right. You have Dante. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're not part of that particular creed, then you don't conceptualize of God correctly. And so then you can't have the right faith in him and you can't worship him the right, the way that he wants to be worshiped. And if you don't worship him the way he wants to be worshiped, then he's going to, going to cast you down to hell. For most religious sects, that means the majority of humanity because there's no majority religious sect in the world. Right. And so this is sort of the, the concept of the time, right? And so you, you have this vision coming out. Yeah. I, I love how you brought up that, that because there's the religious aspect of it too, right? It's not just that there, it, it's not just that there are certain things where everybody understood, Hey, look, it says here in the Bible, right? Uh, it's, it's clear. At least that's the reading that, that we got. And, and we still get, I, I'm saying sadly, we still get that reading that, uh, somebody's got to go to hell. In fact, a lot of people got to go to hell, but that's not what we see here. 
That's not what we see here. It's not what we see later on when we, when we actually see it run into the term the outer darkness, right? Where it's actually, what, what section is that? It's actually really, to me, it's, it's clear both in this section and that section that we're talking about. And with some of the quotes that you shared too, that, that we're talking about a very small number of people, right? Uh, right. it's not, it's not anything like the number of people that we want to send to hell. Right. It's a good thing we're not God. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that's sort of the, the general mainstream Christianity concept here. And so yeah. we have this revelation coming, which posits, you know, again, almost without exception, according to, to verse uh, 43, almost without exception, with this extremely rare exception, as, as even borne out in, in quotes and commentary on this, that we've got universal salvation going on here and so this this caused quite a stir and that's a dirty word in christianity yeah Yeah, because it means that uh, universalism means everybody will save will be saved the the pastor i mentioned earlier rob bell he wrote a book love wins in which he's making the case uh, that we're making here of, of universalism and that's people call him a universalist like it's a dirty word and so he's a heretic now yeah this is yeah. the idea you know, th- this is actually brought up even within the church. There's even today a, a rejection of this concept. And, and I don't know if it's out of, uh, we'll get to a quote later talks about talking about progression. I don't know if it's out of the concept that, oh, when we say saved, we mean exaltation. And if you're not exalted, then, then you're not really saved. Right. And, or, or if it's just, th- just the layover of this, this concept that, well, we've, there's, too many bad people. I see bad people all around me. So plenty of them need to go to hell because these people all need to be punished. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the, the concept there is, but you know, it exists even in, in the church today. So when you, you bring up something like this, we're like, oh, wait, Alma chapter one, Nehor, that was what Nehor was teaching was that the people, you know, God would just save everybody. And, and so this is right. Nehor's teaching. So it's obviously wrong. And that's not what we're saying here. Sure. Yeah. So. Because it's not, we're not talking about people being saved in their sins. Right. We're talking about people being saved from their sins. Right. And, and, and by the way, they're, they're active participants in this, in this salvation as, as we've described. They can't do it alone, obviously, but they have to want to be saved, to be sure. saved. And so, yeah, that's something you're talking about, something as, as you put it, which isn't lost at that point. So all this to contextualize this quote here, and, and so I'm going to read what came from the commentary, but in the commentary, then he quotes both Brigham Young and then Brigham Young's brother, Joseph. So here it goes. Uh, the benevolence shown in the vision was a stumbling block for some of the early saints. Brigham Young later recalled, when God revealed to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that there was a place prepared for all according to the light they had received, and their rejection of evil and practice of good, it was a great trial to many, and some apostatized because God was not going to send to everlasting punishment heathens and infants, but had a place of salvation in due time for all, and would bless the honest and virtuous and truthful, whether they ever belonged to any church or not. It was a new doctrine to this generation, and many stumbled at it. Brigham's brother Joseph was even more blunt in his assessment of the vision, declaring, When I came to read the visions of the different glories of the eternal world and of the sufferings of the wicked, I could not believe it at first. Why, the Lord was going to save everybody. So this was scandalous at the time. 
this concept of this universal salvation was very difficult for a lot of the membership of the church to accept at that time. I think it still is, Ben. Well, that you know, that's that's what I would would say is that <laughs> you know, even to this day, you know, it, it kind of brings that raises the question of if God is trying to teach us line upon line, and and this is the reaction at the at the time to this doctrine. What if it turns out when we when we have a personal experience and see more of this, or or we we actually you know get into eternity and see that God is even more loving and liberal in His salvation than we even understood from this, right? You know, we have the Bible and we understood a certain thing from it or, or general Christianity did. And then this revelation came along that, that more clearly articulates this. And some people look at it as a contradiction, but we're able to, we're able to reconcile those two and say, there's no contradiction. What it would it be if God comes and says, Hey, Here's an even more articulated explanation of the way I'm going to go. And it's even more generous of salvation than we had previously conceived. How might we respond to that? Yeah, let, let me paint a humorous picture in answer to that question, Ben. I can just see somebody. I'll just say me. So here I am. <laughs> I'm arriving in the whichever kingdom. Let's go all the way. I'm arriving in the celestial kingdom. And then I look and I see... Ben, what's he doing here? And then all of a sudden, I drop, and Ben's left alone. <laughs> Celestial King, not alone, but without me, right? <laughs> well, as this vision says, hey, I can come visit you wherever you are. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> there's, there's also hinted at in this, but, but it's not explained explicitly. This concept of we have these kingdoms, and are are these kingdoms? walled right are 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 these spheres uh independent right and who has visiting rights right yeah who has visiting rights where and and <laughs> and the general lds conception has been that you know the higher kingdoms can visit the lower kingdoms but the lower kingdoms can't visit the higher kingdoms right it's it's, it's this one way I mean, that sounds tautologous almost doesn't <laughs> it if, if you're if you're understanding it as states sure then that, that's not really saying anything. It, it's um, not. I, again, when we try to make this too metaphysical, and it's not necessarily metaphysical at all, I, I think you're saying something like, it's not necessarily only metaphysical. I'm saying it's not necessarily metaphysical at all. And we can, you know. Right. We'll just leave it that may there. Be. It may yeah. be, but I think that it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Right. And so the point is, if we make it, too much about something metaphysical, whether it is at all, then we may be missing something. Sure, I agree. Yeah, there's much more depth to be had in the yeah. in, in the other. Concept. Certainly, whatever the metaphysics is, whatever the reality is of the ontological nature of these things, of their being, no matter what that is, there is still an internal state of the heart of the people who are in these places, whether that's described or prescribed, it's there, right? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good way of putting it. So we have this this idea here that there's no there's no progression out of the kingdom possibly. And at least I think this is the way that I was mostly 
taught uh, growing up with the plan of salvation that, hey, you know, you can progress, quote unquote, within your kingdom. But when you get, if you go to the celestial kingdom, then, you know, you got your glass ceiling. You kind of max out on your 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 hierarchy there. And that's as, that's as good as you're going to get through eternity. You can't jump kingdoms, right? Well, you know, Ben, I, I joined the church in 86 in Venezuela, and, and we had had uh-huh. more of a restoration by then. <laughs> and you know, that great apostasy is always trying to creep back into, isn't it? <laughs> so what, did, what, did, what were you taught? No, you know, I've, I've heard that too, Ben, but I've also, I've also heard, and, and we mentioned this earlier, right? The, the general authorities have not agreed on this. Right. And I'm siding with Jesus on this. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's again, there's a, there's a way that this could be, could be uh, phrased and articulated that, that could reconcile this. And okay. it, it's that, it's that, yes, within a certain perception of reality, you can only go so far. Until you, until you then have that dissension and ascension, you're not going to what's that solve at, at coagula, right? You're not right. going to arrive at a higher state without being without being willing to give up what you're at. Right. There has to be a, a creative destruction. I think there's a possibility that that you, in one sense, you could say, yes, there's no way above the celestial kingdom, because in one sense, yes, you have to give up that celestial kingdom perception and concept and frame of mind and mode of being in order for you to repent and see something at a higher level, at at a terrestrial level, right? I think it could be conceptualized of in both ways and, and sort of satisfy that that concept, but I, I certainly know that that the mindset that this just is simply impossible. Once a person goes there, they're completely stuck there. This is certainly very deep within uh, Latter-day Saint conception of this doctrine. There's a quote from one of the sources that we were looking at in commentary to this um, that I think frames this pretty well. It says, um, the vision states that the inhabitants of the celestial world are, quote, as innumerable as the stars in the firmament of heaven. And that where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come. In light of this phrase, the question is often asked, is there eventual advancement from one glory to another? Could a person who is sent to the celestial kingdom progress over time to the terrestrial kingdom and then on to the celestial? Differing opinions have been held by different leaders of the church, but it can be hazardous to set one church leader against another. The question became so nettlesome in the 20th century that Joseph L. Anderson, a secretary to the First Presidency, provided this standard response to the question. The brethren direct me to say that the church has never announced a definite doctrine upon this point. Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible in the course of progression to advance from one glory to another, invoking the principle of eternal progression. Others of the brethren have taken the opposite view. But as stated, the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. Again, all that to say that um, there's room for uh, different ideas and, and doctrines on this without someone being labeled heretical. And um, I'm with yes. you, Chris. I, uh, I'm going to go with what Jesus says about this. Yeah. You know, you reminded me in, in what you were saying about what it would take to progress before you read the quote. Um, that, that yes, in some sense you would be damned, meaning you would be held back by your own perception, by your own epistemology from progressing, uh, unless you had some kind of change, right? Unless you would repent, unless you would turn 
and face the right way, right? And we're, how can you hit a mark that you're not even facing, I always say? Well, yeah. I was reminded of a book by Richard Rohr that covers what he calls in the title of the book, the wisdom pattern, which is order, disorder, reorder. And so there right. just seems to be, do you know what I mean? There just seems to be this, this pattern where, okay, I'm here. And then I can descend in some kind of order. I can descend into some kind of chaos, into a disorder, and come out reordered at a higher level. And so that would be the huh. way. That is, uh, I say that would be the way. That what is, is the Christ said to Nicodemus. Yeah. What is, you know, you have to die and be born again to yes. see the kingdom of God. Exactly. That's so, it. So, yeah, you have That's to it. die to that and be yeah. born again. And you can do this over and over, I'm going to say. Right, right. I think you can't not do it over and over. Might be a better way to put it. This is just—it's well, the wisdom. I think that's pattern. a definition of our of our of of our being, you know, of our humanity or of our offspring of yeah. a deity, so to speak. Is and, is that's a description of who we are? Yeah, and it brings to mind your brother's image of the the ascending spiral. Yeah, yeah. With 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 the other image of the roller coaster, right? The the ups and downs. Yeah, these are all like you know ways of attempting to describe it, but but they all fall flat yeah, at some right. point. Just like all the I'll just I'll just make one more attempt anyway, right? <laughs> just like this whole thing, I say it has the pattern of the the classical and medieval ascension text, where you have the the catabasis and the navasis, the going down and the and the ascension, the descent and the ascent, and you say okay, it has all these other things going on in there, and 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 it's both end, right? So we. We actually ascend by going through these cycles, right? Of, of this wisdom pattern of, of order, disorder, reorder. You know that 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 brings us to full circle again, <laughs> sort of, of appropriately appropriately to the end here, which was where we started at the beginning with this concept of you know they're ending this out and they're saying, look, we did our best to explain what we saw, but really there's just no explaining it. You've got to get your own experience with what this was like, but but this much we can say it's a thing, it's real, and God has prepared all these things for His children and wants to bless them with them, and you can have that experience as well. I I think that that's a really good way of of sort of wrapping that up. Yeah, ditto, folks. Can we say that? Same here. I, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say about the section. No, so. <laughs> me neither. That, that's a great, great way to finish. Yeah, I mean, ditto. Same here, right? That's that's what that's all we've done. Yeah, we've done our best. May may God accept our best. Thank you so much, Christopher, for this conversation. I um, I got, I think it always happens, but I got a lot more out of it than I even expected. And, Same and it's here. funny. It's like it's like I, you know, each time you do it, it's like okay, well. Why, why don't you expect more? And I don't know why I don't, but yeah. I always get more than I expect. <laughs> Same here. In, in all my um, overwhelm and, and intimidation, something told me this might happen. And yet I was overwhelmed and intimidated and fearful and, <laughs> and, and the, best, the best possible outcome occurred. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to, to have had the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much, Christopher. I think next week, I'm not, I'm not sure for sure, but uh, Shiloh might be back uh, with us next week and, and we'll be discussing uh, Beyond 76. Again, don't know the sections off the top of my head, but uh, really appreciate uh, your discussion here with me today, Christopher. If uh, anybody has additional uh, comments they have on this, it, it, there's a whole lot to say about this, obviously, and 
it's inexhaustible. And I, I, I'm very curious to, to hear what other people impressions and thoughts and connections they've made as they read through section 76. Um, and uh, be sure to leave us some comment on that. And we'd like to hear it. But, uh, until next time, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.